2: A Conversation with Authors, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Has our discomfort with uncertainty given rise to forecasting industries that profit off of our prediction addiction? Why are election predictions, polls and surveys, specious and often wrong? And to what extent are predictions really just hypotheses that need to be challenged? I will explore these questions and much more with our very special guest. Margaret Heffernan, author of Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future. Margaret, welcome to the show. It's great to have you.
1: Thank you. It's great to be talking to you. Yeah,
2: you know, I was wondering, as I was reading your book, it became evident to me that, you know, part of the human condition is is an uncomfortability with uncertainty. So why is that the case? Why do humans tend to be uncomfortable with uncertainty? And does that in turn create an addiction to prediction?
1: Well, to a large degree, you know, we have succeeded as much as we have because of our capacity to anticipate what might be happening. You know, the ability to anticipate means we don't get run over when we're crossing the road. It probably in ancient times meant, you know, that we didn't um, drown in rivers or get set upon by tigers. So it bestows an absolute evolutionary advantage. But I think, you know, the more difficult thing is that we've come to believe for a variety of reasons, you know, that we can kind of predict everything because we're good at predicting quite a lot and that we can see further than we can and we can see in more detail than we can. And we've become, I think, quite addicted to many of the kind of tools, apps, and um, sort of formula for thinking about the future and less inclined to notice how increasingly they don't work. So I think we have a craving for certainty because it keeps us safe and also because we've known quite a lot of it in the past. Um, But it means that as we look at a future where more and more is unpredictable, it leaves us very uncomfortable.
2: Important point, Margaret, in good context setting. You know, I was wondering, as technology evolves and we're really in the midst of technological progress, doesn't technological progress make predicting the future, say, easier? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, they will tell you so, um, and and they'll be able to predict some things. For example, although everybody always complains about it, you know, weather forecasting has improved year after year after year. It's actually incredibly good. And if you had asked your grandparents, you know, what it was like, they would be amazed by the specificity that we we enjoy every day. Um. So it's definitely got better, but there are all kinds of fundamental reasons why we can't um, be as confident of prediction as we think we can. For one thing, you know, there's this saying that history repeats itself, but actually it doesn't. And thinking that it does leads us into terrible errors. For example, you know, both Eisenhower and Johnson both believed that the Vietnam War was like Munich and therefore like the Second World War. Well, first of all, as we discovered to a very tragic cost, it was nothing like the Second World War. And as Robert McNamara has so painfully um, expressed, thinking it was is what led us to make such a whole stream of horrible strategic decisions. And thinking that it was also made us think that we really understood where we were, whereas, in fact, we were really lost and confused. So history doesn't repeat itself, which has really significant um, consequences when we come to look at technology, because what's touted as AI uses historical data sets. So it's learning from past um, you know, patterns in data and projecting those the future. But what that does is it assumes that people don't change and that context doesn't change and that knowledge doesn't change. But actually, as we know all the time, it does. And in addition, you know, as we keep finding over and over again with some of the early um, attempts at AI, many data sets are um, incomplete. Many are horribly biased. Many of the algorithms designed to analyze them are very biased. So the notion, for example, it has been tried that you can take a large data set of children requiring help from social services and therefore predict what children will have greater need. You know, this failed spectacularly because A, it didn't include lots of children who get help but not from the the public sector. And it didn't um, include quite a lot of detail around age and circumstance. So, So, even in those cases where we have a ton of data, you know, because it can't be everything, uh, it can't be everything about everybody, the stuff that gets left out has a huge impact on the results that are found, which often lead people in particularly the wrong direction. A perfect example is it rated the risk to a six month old left out in the winter as lower than the risk for a 16 year old. The 16-year-old was deemed to be at greater risk because the 16-year-old had um, received help from social services more frequently. So the idea that we can get every piece of a gigantic puzzle perfectly tuned, I think, is noble but probably absurd.
2: So Margaret, we hear you know elections, predictions, polls, surveys here in the states. We just went through a presidential election. Uh, There have been, you know, globally different um, referenda, what have you, where predictions have been made and polls have been published and surveys have been drawn. And, you know, what we've noticed, and it's become evident to me, is that uh, they don't always tell you who wins. And they seem to be of late pretty inaccurate. Why is that the case?
1: Well, yeah, it is. And And not just in the United States. Um, I mean, it's a problem for several reasons. One is because no two elections are the same. So if you apply the same methodology, you know, from an election where the polling worked, if you could find one, um, you know, there's no guarantee that that methodology will, um, will work next time. And you, even if you took this year's methodology and tweaked it to accommodate everything you've learned since, By the time we get to the next election, all sorts of other things may have happened, which your algorithms and so on still don't accommodate. So, you know, this is a moving target. But it's also, of course, and we've known this since you know Gallup started doing surveys at the beginning of the century, really. People don't always tell the truth. The people you choose to do your polling with, you think you know, you know, how representative they are, but you don't know everything about them. And the thing is, especially when you're dealing with really tiny margins of errors, these tiny distinctions and slip-ups can have a disproportionate effect. So what's alarming about them is that they, they seem to give a level of certainty. But to some degree, you know, I have some sympathy for pollsters. To some degree, the fault is ours is in believing them. You know, which is these are these are better understood as highly educated guesses. And it's our thinking that that somebody out there knows. That I think is is our kind of weakness. You know, the the Greeks thought that crazy old women in caves knew. The Romans thought you could out birds and read their entrails. You know, we seem to have kind of desire for magical belief in the future without grasping that since it hasn't happened yet, people don't know what it is. It's
2: very important, Margaret. Yeah, really interesting insights there. And I, I definitely agree with you on that. Here's the other side of that equation, though. So, So if we can't predict the future, how can we prepare for it?
1: And, um, and I, you know, on that front, I'm quite buoyant, um, and I've written a lot about organizations that prepare, I think, very well. But one reason that, or very often, organizations don't prepare well, is because we've grown up, most of us, in a time and with a, in a context of thinking about management, that thought that. What you wanted to do was plan, and planning was about optimizing efficiency. Efficiency is fantastic when you're dealing in environments where you have a lot of control, where they're quite linear, and they are repetitive. So if you think of a car assembly line, you can pretty much predict at Ford how many cars they're going to produce tomorrow, which is probably going to be strikingly similar to the number of cars they produced today. But once you start getting involved in more complex environments, efficiency will erode any margin you have to deal with shocks and surprises. So I think efficiency really gets in the way of preparing because preparedness is about robustness. And I distinguish robustness from resilience. Robustness means when something surprising happens, you just keep going. It's why you have more, uh, more engines in a plane than you need and more operating systems in a plane than you need because you don't want to recover from the crash. You want the crash not to happen. You want the plane to be able to get through a geese strike or a bug in the operating system. So it's over-engineered. That's preparing. Resilience means, well, I have the capacity to bounce back, which in you know, less fatal circumstances might be good enough. But I think when you're working in a context of great uncertainty, which is true for many, many organizations these days, we have to think much more about robustness. What are the likely risks that will have a large impact on our business? And how do we build in buffers to deal with those.
2: That's an interesting distinction between robustness and resiliency or robustness versus resiliency, Margaret. You know, what you described as robustness, I've always seen as a component or a subcomponent of resiliency. I think it's an important distinction. Very good. Could you expand on that?
1: Now, for example, after the um, financial crash, you know, the Basel II requirements in terms of the amount of capital that banks had to hold, that was about robustness. It was basically saying if you know, if, if people start selling bad products to poor people, um, and the banks are under pressure, we we'll need enough capital there that the whole system doesn't doesn't collapse. You know, we've seen that it's kind of resilient in the in the sense that we could crawl our way back, but actually, we don't want it to fall apart as easily as it did. And I think that robust thinking, robust systems, robust comes from engineering, and, and it's absolutely targeted on these likely high-impact events. And, of course, if you're going to have a system that's robust, it's not going to be 100% efficient. It's just like the plane, right? It's carrying engines it may never need. But the impact of failure is too great not to do it.
2: And, Margaret, you point out in your book Uncharted – that the forecasting business has made its quote-unquote experts, on, in some cases, very rich. And in a sense, it's based on a fallacy. Why can't the future be neatly extrapolated from the past? And how can we embrace uncertainty more effectively?
1: Well, it can't be extrapolated from the past because very subtle changes happen along the way. I mean, there's a kind of beautiful, if crazy, story. You know that in 1938, the British government voted more money for horses and hay than for than for tanks. Right? They were extrapolating the future from the past, and guess what? Things had changed. Um, it's very similar to the Munich um, Vietnam analogy. You know. Um, so things change. And also, you know in complex systems, which is which are characteristic of much of life, small changes may have a gigantic impact. So the difficulty with using the past to to um, extrapolate, to extrapolate from the past to the future is that in the meantime, all sorts of things have happened which you're not completely aware of. And neither can you, if you can't see all of them, you can't even begin to estimate the impact of them. So, and you saw this, I would say in the 2016 election, which is a lot had happened to individuals to make them extremely unhappy with what they were being offered by traditional parties. And you had this completely unexpected thing, which was a candidate nobody expected to go anywhere. So if you extrapolated from the 2012 election, you would never have got to the 2016 election. Never. You know, and many of these things are, are you know, they're, they're either so unlikely or they're so small that your guarantee of catching them before they, you know, they, they have an impact is quite small because you can't see everything.
2: So Margaret, I'd be remiss in not asking you to elaborate on the distinction between the complicated and the complex, you've mentioned it a couple of times. These are two important concepts that really need to be distinguished. Could you elaborate?
1: Sure. So, um, so complicated systems are a little bit like the assembly line in Detroit, which is to say there are lots and lots and lots and lots of moving parts, but um, but it's the it operates pretty much the same way every day. Um, you, there, there's a pretty clear relationship between cause and effect um the, there are patterns and they repeat themselves and these are systems which are highly optimized for efficiency and they're areas in which technology does a really beautiful job and you could think of this for example as in the days where we used to fly you know around places when you go and you check your bag into uh, in, in the airport. There are lots of moving pieces and often multiple companies involved in checking the bag in, getting it to the plane, onto the plane, off the plane, onto the carousel, and into your hand. But it's pretty much the same every day, and the bags are pretty much the same every day. That's complicated. Complex is a completely different thing. So they're non-linear systems. Very small things can have a disproportionate effect. There are patterns, but they don't repeat themselves predictably. Things can change very suddenly, so expertise can't always keep up. And perhaps most, you know, frighteningly, what just happened may not be at all connected to what happens next. So these are inherently unpredictable systems. And as we were saying earlier, if you manage them for efficiency, you're often in great difficulty. And the analogy here would be, when that suitcase of yours is on the plane and the plane takes off and gets into the air, although, you know, that, that plane has flown that route for, you know, day after day after day, every time it gets into the atmosphere, it knows that there are things that may happen that were unforeseeable, like a geese strike, like a suddenly, you know, some bug in the computer system. And so these are complex environments in which you have to over-engineer. And I think what's really interesting, but also very difficult to get one's head around is that often in, a, in, a, in an organization, you may have a body of work where a bunch of it is complicated and a bunch of it is complex. So I write in my book about a, a home care nursing organization Which, you know, like all health insurance, you know, the insurance triggers the contract, which triggers the assignment of the nurse, which triggers the schedule. And then the nurse does kind of 10 minutes on a Monday visit and seven minutes on a Wednesday visit and eight minutes on the Friday visit. And the whole system was run as though the whole thing were complicated. And there were two problems with this. One was it was super expensive to run. And the second was that the nurses hated it because they felt what they could do was so strictly prescribed that they were just kind of robots in the system. You know, they had no real contribution to make. They were just following orders and schedules. And so, a very clever nurse who had also trained as an economist saw that actually in this system, there were two pieces. All of the paperwork, the insurance, the contracts, the assignment, the invoicing, all of that kind of stuff, that was complicated, and it could very effectively be automated using technology. But looking after the patients isn't complicated. It's complex because no two patients are the same. And indeed, even two patients coming out of the same hospital after the same procedure might recover at very different rates. One might end up back in the in hospital, and one might recover really quickly. And so he proposed this experiment where he said, okay, well, we're gonna automate the first part of the process. But the second part we're going to say to the nurses, 'You're qualified nurses, you know what you're doing, use your best judgment for how often to see the patient and what they need, because it's, you know, you're there. And this is not we can't predict what the patient's going to need. And the outshot of this exquisite experiment was that when you left nurses to use their judgment on site, the patients got better in half the time. And the cost of looking after the, the, the patients fell by 30%. So understanding that in this System. There was both a complicated piece and a complex piece, and that they could, the, it could be managed with different uh, approaches, yielded tremendous benefits. And I think that you know one of the huge areas of kind of unexplored productivity in our organizations is not about oh let's digitize and automate everything. Because then you're having to force fit predictability onto things that aren't predictable and that's where things will go wrong. But it's to think about how, what's all the repeatable stuff and use technology for that. And what's all the unexpected stuff and use human beings and human judgment you know, who can act spontaneously in terms of what's right in front of them, who can act really well and use expertise and wisdom And then you get the best of both worlds.
2: Margaret, one of the things I like about your book is that it's chock full of interesting anecdotes and compelling stories that illustrate the insights you are sharing. And and one thing you point out in your book is that poor decisions derive from anxiety. And anxiety comes from a lack of control. How can we change this dynamic? And perhaps you could highlight the example you provide in the book around patient waiting rooms.
1: I think this is a really beautiful story. I'm glad you picked it out. You know, there's a phenomenal experiment going on in Austin, Texas, where they're building a whole new healthcare system. And, um, and the people who are leading it really have had great experience and insight in seeing that how patients feel in their relationship to, their, to everything in the healthcare system that they interact with impacts their judgment. So their big bet has been essentially that if you can improve the relationship between the patient and the healthcare institution, the patient will make better judgments, be more involved in their healthcare, be more likely to follow through you know, with physiotherapy and diet and be, all the behavioral stuff, and therefore the outcomes will be better and cheaper. And so this, this healthcare center, the Dell Medical Center, was really set up to, to test this to the help. And so when they were designing the building, they said, well, you know, hospital waiting rooms, are, and I can vouch for this, <laughs> are some of the most awful, dreary places in the world. And they make everybody anxious because you look around thinking, you know, I, do I look as terrible as that guy? Uh, you know, and gee, everybody here is much older than I am, you know, am I really in trouble? And I mean, we all know they're terrible places, right? So they said, okay, so we want a hospital that where there are no waiting rooms. And all the architects said, you can't do that. Uh, it's never been done. And here are all the 57 reasons why you need uh, waiting rooms. They said, no, we didn't come here to do what everybody else is doing. We want to do something different. And they said, well, show us the data that shows this will work. And they said, but you can't have data about the future, right? There are no data sets for what nobody's ever done before. Uh, anyway, took it was a two-year battle, and they eventually designed, and I've been there, You know this exquisite hospital where you were checked in and you go straight to essentially your suite, which is big enough to accommodate your family or whoever you want to bring with you. It doesn't have this rather intimidating table you know, right in front of you where you think you're going to be forced to lie down and expose yourself. They, there's a table that can turn into that if you need it, but why frighten people before you absolutely have to? There's room for kids and stuff. And all the doctors come to the patients. So instead of a very hierarchical system, which is you, know, you come to my office in my time and you're a guest in my space and you do what I tell you, This is your space, and the doctors and the nurses and the radiographers and so on, they all come to you. And the people you need with you to feel comfortable, they can stay to the degree that you want them to. And the doctors have done quite a lot of work on how to talk to patients to capture really good information about their psychological state by having a good kind of human conversation with them. And they've even tested, for example, the difference between. What they learn if they ask, is there anything else I can help you with versus, is there something else I can help you with? They really have put a lot of effort into communication. And the upshot of all of this is what they found is that they can treat people more cheaply with better outcomes by focusing on the relationship between doctors, other medical practitioners, and the patients. And the other thing they do, which I think is brilliant, is, you know, they're absolutely not averse to technology, but they, instead of buying stuff off the shelf and then having everybody bend to the will of it, you know, they paper prototype everything and then get exactly what they think will serve the way that they want to do medicine. I mean, it's it's a really awe-inspiring kind of font of incredible creative thinking.
2: To what extent are predictions really just hypotheses that need to be challenged? I'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns.
0: To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org.
2: Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Margaret Heffernan, author of Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future. So, Margaret, in your book, you provide a wonderful history of the evolution of forecasting, and you also note there are three profound problems that seem to be endemic to forecasting that still even dogs it today. Could you elaborate on those?
1: Yeah. I mean, the problems I think that exist with, with forecasting is that the data is always impartial. The people making the forecast have vested interests in the outcome because this is a business. And the more drama there is, the more attention the business will get. And it was John Maynard Keynes who first pointed this out because he was deeply uncomfortable with the forecasting business. He felt early on, and this was in the 1920s, he said, isn't there a danger that as we sell forecasts to people, the more drama there is, the more they buy from us. And therefore we start to have a vested interest in boom and bust. And he also, I think, understood absolutely that there is always a level of uncertainty in life that the forecasting business would attempt to minimize. And in minimizing it might miss the things that mattered most. And so this is not about good forecasters versus bad forecasters. This is just endemic to the nature of the beast. And you can't get away from it, right? And especially if for, when, as forecasting becomes a business You can't get away from it because obviously the forecast, it says, well, we're not quite sure, you know, is not a a bestseller (laughs) because you're purporting to sell certainty. So it's I mean, it's a really fascinating history, I think. And, you know, very fascinating that the founding fathers of forecasting were all um, diagnosed with tuberculosis. You know, they really understood to understood uncertainty. And they really had a passionate, personal need to feel that they could find certainty. And they therefore thought they found it when they didn't.
2: So, Margaret, how does our desire for certainty leave us susceptible to other people's agendas and business imperatives? At what point does prediction and forecasting become propaganda, where rational questioning is dissuaded and prophecy as a technique is used to shape and accelerate a future that may be dominated by the prognosticators?
1: Yeah. Well, I think you see this most predominantly in the tech industry, I have to say. Um, and I th- you know, the example that gives me most delight, because I think it's so ridiculous, you know all the predictions that we've been assailed by with regard to driverless cars which i think i'm right in remembering was supposed to be here in 2017 and there're a whole bunch of things going on here one is gross understatement of what the problems are you know the problems are immense absolutely immense the second problem is that in general, to the degree that these systems work, they they work in highly controlled environments. So that either me, you know, so they might work quite well in airports, but it could also mean that the only way they're going to work with pedestrians is to is to cage pedestrians in. So nobody's really going to talk about the trade-offs. So there's, there's a minimization of the difficulty. There's an uh, over-optimism about when it's going to work, and and there's a huge reluctance to talk about actually how hard the problem is. And what all of this is doing, You know, by saying, okay, you know, driverless cars are here in 2017. What are they doing? Well, they're certainly persuading people not to invest in public transportation or infrastructure. Um, they're certainly persuading some people, sadly, that they don't ever need to learn how to drive. They're persuading all kinds of investors to pay absolutely silly money to um, companies that say they can solve this problem or that problem with um, driverless cars. And what they're also trying to do is to get, is to price some competitors out of the market. So all of these predictions aren't actually predictions because they're not founded in reality. They're propaganda designed to shape a market before the reality exists. And what I think is kind of tragic and, and, and unfair really, is that people fall for it because the idea is kind of cool. You know, I mean, my first thought when I heard about driverless cars was, oh, great, I can go to parties and drink and come home safely, right? But of course, when you start digging into it, you realize no, because actually you have to be alert, and actually you are the last point of intervention. So that means you you can't go to the party and drink. But even worse than that, and this is where I think it becomes kind of venal, we know that the less you do something the less good you get at it so if you're sitting behind the wheel of your driverless car and you don't have to intervene for two years let's say three years you know should that time ever come at the moment that you do have to intervene you are so rusty and out of practice you're very unlikely to spot it or to know what to do so this is also really dangerous because it's you know it's truly minimizing what
2: the risks can be. So Margaret, that's the automation paradox, correct?
1: That is the automation paradox. And you can see it in really simple things, right? So I, so I use technology as I think most people do now to remember everybody's phone numbers, including, you know, my parents and my kids. When I grew up, of course I knew my parents' phone numbers, you know, I still know my parents' phone numbers, but I have outsourced to technology in my phone the task of remembering everybody's phone number now i'm okay with that you know it's it's i decided that it's a risk worth taking and if i lose my phone you know i can get another phone and retrieve all the stuff and i'm a you know obsessive um backer-upper but there are other things i don't want to outsource i don't want to outsource decision making because if i make fewer and fewer decisions i become less good at making decisions and less good at comparing the choice I made with the outcome that I got. Um, I'm a real uh, GPS cynic because I'm constantly alert to the fact that almost never is the travel time what it's predicted to be. Now, I don't really care, right? Because I always give myself a huge margin for getting to places I've never been to before. But I can't help but notice that the timing is almost always off. Not by much, but it's almost always off. And I know, I mean, recently, you know, I had to, um, before all our lockdowns, you know, I had to go on quite a long drive. And knowing the territory, I left myself tons of time. You know, the GPS was off by about 75%. You know, I know the terrain, it doesn't. And if that, if that were time sensitive, I would not wish to have outsourced that decision to others. I find, you know, the the Alexas and series of this world and the degree to which children shout at them um, disturbing because they're outsourcing the request for something and learning that you can just shout at thing. You know, you can shout for what you want. I hate to think of a child brought up like that, but I've seen a fair number of them in restaurants and I don't like what I see. Um, so I think, you know, I think we have to be deeply thoughtful, obviously having run tech companies, I'm not a technophobe, but I think we have to be deeply thoughtful about what we're willing to outsource and lose and what capabilities and skills we really need to hang on to for dear life.
2: Margaret, from reading your book, Uncharted, it's obvious to me that you're not a technophobe. Um, to what extent are predictions really just hypotheses that need to be challenged? And why is it so important that we use them to broaden and navigate our conceptual and imaginative horizons and not just accept them, but as I said earlier, to in fact challenge them?
1: Yeah. Well, so I think it's, you know, it's it's fair enough to say, okay, so maybe this is true. Not this is true. This is not right? Maybe this is true. So let's think about if it were true, what would it mean? How would I feel about that? And what might I wish to change in my business or in my life? And let's do the counterfactual too. And let's say, well, what if it's not true? If it weren't true, why wouldn't it be true? And if it weren't true, what different decisions might I make? So it's really about critical thinking. And seeing that we have choices. And I think, you know, one of the one of the beefs I have about the propaganda that comes out of Silly Valley is it's absolutely determined to tell you you don't have any choices. Right? Driverless cars are coming, and that's and whether you like it or not, just get out of the way. You have no choice. So it's a very ugly tone to take with the public. I've been in the business long enough to know that every summer for the last 20 years has been the summer when VR is finally going to find its reason to live. (laughs) Every summer I'm being told this is the summer of VR. Well, you know, I'm glad I wasn't holding my breath, but you know, and VR is a classic example of a technology in search of a purpose. It may have one. It might not. It wouldn't be the first technology that's really cool that actually has no usefulness at all. But I think, you know, what we have to do is look at these things and say, okay, let's think about it critically because, A, we need not to just give in when people tell us stuff, but also it may help us identify opportunities that we wouldn't see otherwise. And I think, you know, a big argument in my book is forget about certainty and start thinking about options. What are your options? What are your choices? Don't believe people or industries or PR or vaporware that says you don't have choices. You always have choices. And the essence of robustness and resilience is to see them early.
2: So, Margaret, you do a wonderful job of explaining and introducing scenario planning and distinguishing it from forecasting. Why is scenario planning more useful than forecasting? And how important are such questions as what if and so what in scenario planning?
1: Yeah. So I think scenario planning is a really deeply fascinating process um, for a number of reasons. The first is that, you know, the essence of scenario planning is it's about getting a very diverse group of people together from multiple disciplines to posit on the basis of you know plausible information, possible futures. It is not to pick one. It is to be able to identify that it is plausible that any of the, fo- the following three or four scenarios could happen. Not to put probabilities against them, but to ask the crucial question, which is if scenario one were to come true, what would we wish we had been doing now? If scenario two were to happen, what would we wish we had been doing now? So they're fantastic examples of thinking about preparedness. And what they do is they throw up options. They put people, if you like, mentally in these different plausible futures and say, okay, Scenario two just happened. What do you do? What do you wish you'd been doing right now? And then they look at all of those options and say, okay, of those, what are the things we could be, should be doing now anyway? And what are the opportunities that this exercise has really surfaced um, in terms of what we can do together, what we can do differently? And I think there are very much more creative and deeply more enlightening than the many board meetings I've sat in where, you know, executive A says, I think this is going to happen, and executive B says, I think that's going to happen. And you have a total stalemate because neither of them knows. And it is about surfacing options. And the other thing I think, which I didn't realize until I I started interviewing some of the kind of doyen of scenario planning, is that they really change the culture because they are about thinking about possibilities. There's no absolute truth. They derive a lot from quite a lot of fierce debate and so on. And so they do two things they legitimize debate in a way that's very empowering for people, but they also make it possible to kind of come back and say, you know, that thing that we thought wasn't going to happen. I've seen a lot of things that suggest it might. Let's let's rethink this one. And, you know, changing one's minds in institutions can be deeply difficult politically. But if you shared the experience of looking at possibilities and can call on that, it becomes a lot easier to be flexible and adaptable.
2: If we can't predict the future, how can we best prepare for it? I'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns.
0: How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today.
2: Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Margaret Heffernan, author of Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future. Margaret, you point out in your book, preparedness is a vital anecdote to passivity and pessimism. Could you tell us what are the four components of preparedness that you outline in your book? And really what I'm focusing on is the type of thinking Uh, that is distinguished, is the just-in-case thinking versus the just-in-time thinking? And how do they factor in to really effective preparedness?
1: Right. So I encountered, um, in the course of my researches, I encountered this organization called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, which is a bit of a mouthful. And I encountered it very early in its life because it was only created in 2017. Unfortunately, we'd all be better off if it had been created a lot earlier. And Richard Hatcher, who's the first director there, had this, I think, very brilliant insight, which is, he said, you know, in an epidemic, there are kind of two modes of thinking. And one is the just in case. And this is fundamentally robust thinking. You know, this is... um, What's the stuff we need to be working on now? Because if or when an epidemic strikes, we need it, and we don't have time. And in this case, what he identified, you know, look, because you know, talking to people who spend their lives in epidemiology, in the middle of an epidemic, the one thing you absolutely want to have is a vaccine. That's the holy grail. So the organization started funding vaccine development three years ago, and they identified candidates of diseases that were most likely, and if they broke out, um, would have the most dire impact. And among the first candidates that they chose, fortunately for all of us, were uh, beta coronaviruses. And what's very striking is that they did this because pharma, the pharma industry did not want to do it. You know, the farm industry was not prepared to invest in things that might never happen. So this was just in case. And it was very inefficient because they were working on six diseases, some of which may never create epidemics. And many of the vaccine candidates won't work. Now, right now, with, you know, with coronavirus, we have over 2,000 vaccine candidates. This is spectacularly inefficient, but it's fantastically robust because it means we can be reasonably confident that out of those, there will be a number that work and maybe some that are better for some circumstances than others. So that was stuff where he says you have to start early and throw a lot at it. And then he said, there's the other kind of thinking, which is just in time, which is when you have an epidemic and if you have a vaccine, then you're going to have to move really quickly to mass manufacture that. So what you can do now is you can put all those contractual relationships in place. You can put the capital flows of, and of the availability of capital in place. But actually, you, when the moment hits, then you have to be able to work on a just-in-time, classic manufacturing assembly line methodology. And these two ways of working are perfectly compatible. And I think it's a really brilliant way of thinking about the future, which is what are the things, you know, if we're a company or even a family, what are the things that we should be doing just in case? Families take out insurance. Um, Lots of people buy fire extinguishers. They hope never to use either of these things, but they do it just in case. And then just in time, what are the things that we might have to do really quickly And do we know where to go for those when we need them? Shows that long term thinking and short-term thinking are not mutually exclusive. They're completely compatible.
2: So, Margaret, I'd like to transition a little bit to the aspect of your book, Uncharted, where you focus on art and artists and their role and what we can learn from them. I was wondering, how does art stay relevant in times and circumstances well beyond any future its maker could have imagined? And what is it about the way artists live and work that kind of puts them in touch with ideas and themes that last so long?
1: Yeah. Well, it's a. I mean, I think it's a deeply fascinating question, and obviously, one I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about. I mean, there were there were kind of two reasons that I was fascinated um, by how artists think. Very much galvanized by the fact that I've spent quite a lot of my career working with outstanding artists. The first is that everything about everything they do is deeply uncertain, and they know it, and they can tolerate it. So I think, you know, they're a brilliant illustration of the degree to which uncertainty doesn't have to be incapacitating. Um, But the other thing I think is fascinating about them is they're incredible sense makers. They're sponges. You know, they pick up weak signals like no other group of people I have ever known. And one of the things that's so interesting is that so many of them just walk They walk around cities, often at night, um, just looking, trying to get a sense of what's going on. Where are we? Where is the world? What's, What's happening out there? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? Does it feel comfortable? Does it feel safe? Does it feel anxious? And they're kind of using themselves as sensors. And this is in a very unstructured way. They're kind of using themselves as, if you like, the the litmus paper or whatever. And they allow themselves reflection time for all of this stuff that they're picking up. And they wait until it seems to coalesce into something. And sometimes it'll coalesce into multiple things, you know, but... But they recognize that the human brain is, you know, not only the most complex thing in the known universe, but also possibly the most brilliant thing in the known universe. And that if you stock it with all sorts of interesting observations, sense will emerge. And we know in complex systems that emergence is really you know, crucial, noticing what, what is this system telling me. And then they have a tremendous sense of agency, which is that they start before anybody asks them to. Most artists, you know, write what they write or paint what they paint, not because somebody says, "Will you do this, but because the things that they've absorbed, noticed, and started to perceive cries out in their heads for action. And they start before anybody asks them to. And they don't start knowing exactly what they're going to do. They expect to discover it along the way. And this, I think, is really crucial, especially from a business perspective. When you come to innovation, if you say, I want people to be creative and I want them to come up with stuff and they can tell me everything about it before they've done it, it's going to be pretty much something that's been done before because they've already seen it. So you have to give this space for unknowing, I think, um, which is you. Dis, you know, it's a combination of invention and discovery, and you see this in many of the great tech innovations. You know that people didn't quite understand. I mean, even Apple didn't quite understand actually what the smartphone was until people started to use it. And you and you have to leave space and be comfortable with the uncertainty that. Allows that to be discovered. And at the same time, you know, I was listening to an artist today saying, every artist knows that the next mark they make might spoil what they've made. You know, so it's constantly anxiety provoking. The novelist Sebastian Barry says, you know, at any moment the whole story could change. And he lives in fear, he says, that the next word won't come. So these are very strong people. And when they finish, they don't know whether what they've made is successful or not. There's no business plan because they've made something that's never existed before. How can you predict whether the public will love it or hate it? And again, you know, Sebastian Barry put his book Days Without End in the, in the mail, um, thinking, well, it wasn't, he loved it, but it wasn't going to be very successful. So he better write another book quickly. And it's, you know, the, the first author in the UK ever to win the Costa Book Prize twice. It's been a huge global bestseller. So he knows that he is no judge, but he can't not do the work. And I think there's just a huge amount for us to learn about this process, which is the diametric opposite of scientific management. And I was really interested to discover that Andy Haldane, who's the chief economist at the Bank of England, Said that you know when he's trying to understand the economy, one of the things that he'll do after you know absorbing all the data and all that stuff is he'll just walk and he'll look and he'll pay attention to how people how are people behaving, what are they buying, where are they congregating, where are the stores that are empty, what are the streets that are empty. You know he understands that however many numbers you have, you're going to miss something, and you need to use yourself and your your consciousness as a kind of sponge to tell you the stuff that the numbers can't find.
2: Margaret, I speak to government executives and thought leaders about their view of leadership and how it's applied. I was wondering if you could elaborate on what is an adaptive leader? How important is it for that leader to have a tolerance for ambiguity? And what other characteristics are essential for today's leaders?
1: I mean, it's a great question. I think the people I know who are tolerant of ambiguity have generally lived a l- lives full of change. So they've they've become, and the change has meant that they've had to adapt, and they've become confident in their capacity to adapt and to improvise. Um, I think also, and this is this is a sort of consistent theme in all of my writing, really. I think most organizations are jam packed full of talent that is hideously underused. And so I think a key component of leadership in this age is the capacity to convene a very diverse group of people at every level and ask them hard questions and listen to the ideas and comments that come from every level. I have so often Had the experience of having a grueling hard problem solved by somebody either working outside their domain expertise or kind of lost down in the bottom of the hierarchy. You know, the capacity to invent and discover obeys no hierarchy at all. So I think a key component of leadership is are you throwing the problems out to enough people? One of the really interesting things in the pandemic has been that it's forced leaders to allow decisions to be made at a local level. And most of them are finding that works much better that actually decentralizing and letting people make decisions on the spot has led to much better decision-making. So I think the power to convene multiple voices and allow deep exploration and conflict in the course of that is really fundamental. I think the capacity to pose a great question is a necessary component of leadership. And I think holding a tension between the long-term sense of where are we going and the short-term, what are we going to do today to get towards that Um, So so allowing the short term, as we were talking about earlier, allowing the short term and the long term to cohabit and not let one dominate, I think is a fundamental requirement of leaders. And also, I have to say, in the uncertainty that we're all facing into, the capacity that artists have, which is to take action before you need to,
2: not to wait. So, Margaret, thanks for joining me today, taking some time out of your busy schedule. How can folks get a copy of your book?
1: Well, in the U.S., they can get it from pretty much all fine bookstores, online and offline. Um, and there's also, I would say, obviously, a digital edition and an audio book, which I recorded from um, an audio studio I built inside my home. <laughs> so, you know, from all good bookstores, as I say, online and off- offline, both um, in the U S the U you know, North America, and there is a different edition in uh, England and the EU.
2: Thanks again, Margaret. Take care.
1: Well, thank you for your very interesting questions and for a wonderful conversation.
2: This has been a special edition of the business of government hour, a conversation with authors series, focusing on leading through uncertain times with Margaret Heffernan, author of uncharted, how to navigate the future. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always, at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thank you for joining us.
0: This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery – Yan Yan Eng presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.